Well, good morning. Good to see you today. You only got so many shopping days till Christmas, so better get it going. Guys, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, as did I. We have so much to be thankful for. There wasn't enough time to get it all in, uh, is the way I look at it. Uh, Today, we are resuming our studies in Romans, and we're at the beginning of chapter 6. And this is, a, this is a very, very important chapter. As a matter of fact, some of you know that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the last century uh, preached a series on Romans on Friday nights for his congregation. And he did this regularly. They had a Friday night Bible study. And he preached on Romans not for one year, not for two, not for five, not for ten, but for 12 years. So if you think I'm going slowly through Romans, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, he defined slowly, expounding the scriptures. And uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that he would have started his series sooner in life if he could have figured out what Romans 6 meant. So the last thing for him to grasp before he felt confident in launching his 12-year-plus series in Romans was an understanding of Romans chapter 6. Now, when someone like Dr. Lloyd-Jones says that, I'm suspicious of myself and I realize I've probably not even identified the problems that he sees in his brilliance. Uh, I just can easily just go over things. And certainly, we're going to move fast today. We're not going to get in the weeds. We won't get into these details that probably would have hung him up. But sometimes people are hung up on the main idea in Romans 6, and that I think we do grasp and we can talk about today, and that's the main thing. And here's what it is. Paul, as you know, in our previous, from our previous studies, has been describing the definitive work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that in one sense, it is done. It is completed for us. Now, we're being sanctified, and one day we're going to be glorified. But in terms of our justification, our acceptance before God, our adoption as His sons, and having been set apart for His purposes, that has happened already in Jesus Christ. So it happened simply through faith. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we immediately receive all of the forensic or legal benefits of our salvation. In other words, we, our status is definitively transformed. We go from darkness to light. We go from God's enemy to God's friend. We go from stranger to son. We go from convicted sinner to acquitted sinner. So it's a definitive act of God in our justification through faith. And then we saw it's rooted in the atonement that Jesus offered for us on Calvary's cross, which, remember this word, propitiated the wrath of God. So the work of Jesus Christ satisfied God and specifically the demands of God's justice in condemning our sin. So when Jesus became sin for us, He fully satisfied the demands of God's holy justice in having to judge and condemn every sin. That's already happened. And then we saw uh, two weeks ago, Barton was teaching us about the whole idea of the imputation of our sin upon Jesus Christ. One man took the sin for us all. 
just as from Adam was imputed to us the sin and guilt of humanity. We got it from Adam by imputation. In the same way, by imputation, we get our righteousness from Jesus Christ. So we have been transferred from a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of of misery and ruin to a kingdom of glory and joy and peace. We've been taken out of one reign into another reign. You pick this up particularly in chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So no matter what sin and the law had done to us, no matter what the accusations, no matter what the guilt, sin abounded even more than, I mean, grace abounded even more than that. So whatever the depth of our sin, the depth of grace is greater. No matter what the height of our, of our insolence and our shame, the height of God's grace is greater. This is what Paul is saying. Keep reading in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we've seen now, up until now, in Paul's argument that we don't contribute anything to our justification. Uh, uh, Only Christ's atonement is the grounds for that justification. We connect to that justification and receive the gift of it through faith. Faith is necessary. But faith is not the grounds of our acceptance. The ground is the perfect life of Jesus Christ lived in our place and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ paying for the penalty of all of our sin. Now, that having been done, and if that's our belief system, Paul now begins to anticipate some rational objections to that. And the first big rational objection that he faces is this. If that's true, if it's all been done for you and your sins are forgiven unconditionally, and you know that, the sins yesterday, the sins today, and the sins tomorrow already forgiven, then just give me an answer to this. Why don't you just go ahead and sin it up? You know, it's God's business to forgive. It's your business to sin. We've got a good arrangement here. And that's the big objection. How is it, especially those with a Jewish background who are, who are marinated in Judaistic ways of thinking, which would be the same way they're, they're thinking today. Those who have been thinking a certain way for a long time, they're going, hey, look, this sounds literally too good to be true. You're telling me I can have adulterous affairs, I can gamble all my family's money away, I could live a dissolute life. Hey, who cares? I've been justified. Jesus Christ has stood in my place. I'm free. So the big question is, how can you hold to this doctrine, which on one hand is very comforting because we no longer walk in fear. We no longer walk as feeling guilty because we're not guilty. We're innocent. We're declared innocent, even as sinners. That's the beauty and the wonder of the gospel message. But on the other hand, how is this going to have anything to do with a holy life and obeying the law of God and being reverent before Him and having any disciplines in your life? How is that 
impossible to put these two together. Now, Paul is answering that question for us. And in Romans 6, there are two parts to it. It's cut right in half. Verses 1 through 14 we studied today. And here Paul uses the analogy of baptism and union with Christ to explain his argument. Next week we'll look at verses 15 through 23 where Paul uses the analogy of slavery and freedom to describe by that analogy to show how this works. But Paul is very eager to show us how this works. And basically what he's going to show us, the, the, the big idea here is that When you become a believer, you not only have a new status, but at the same time, you gain a new nature. This is the big idea. So that it's not resting on your laurels uh, that, that produces your lifestyle. It's actually being changed in your nature that leads to a new lifestyle. And Paul's overriding point here is that no one has one without the other. So it's it's not a proper question because you're asking the question as though someone could have their legal righteousness and not have a new nature. And Paul's going to show how that's impossible because the very same Jesus Christ who dies for you and satisfies the demands of God's justice, dies for you and kills the reign and power of sin in your life. Now this leads to other questions that he takes up in Romans 7 and 8. So you keep having questions. I mean, you, make, you take one doctrinal stand and it raises all kinds of questions. You answer those and it raises some more questions. And that's the way theology is. That's the way truth is. One thing leads to another. It's supposed to be that way. So, of course, if, if in your own mind you're wrestling with the gospel or if you're talking to someone else who's wrestling with it, one question and answer produces another one. That's the way it goes because truth is always interconnected and there are always issues and potential problems that have to be addressed. So, in God's great kindness to us, the Apostle Paul had a reason to write the Romans and to explain this in some depth. And we need it just as they needed it. And gratefully, uh, on our behalf, it's here before us. Let's read then verses uh, 1 through 14 in chapter 6, and here we will get the, uh, the teaching on the beginning of teaching on Christian sanctification. Now, this is going to run all the way through chapter 8. Uh, his idea of how justification, proper understanding of justification, leads to a proper practice of sanctification. Well, and before we read, let me just say basically, Paul's going to go further than just showing you how it logically holds together. He's going to go further than merely defending his view of justification. What he's going to do is he's going to go from defense to offense. And he's going to say to you, basically, over these chapters, the only way for a man truly to walk in newness of life, the only way for a man truly to be sanctified is through this understanding of the gospel. That's, that's basically his point. So uh, he, he will defend, but you know the Apostle Paul well enough. No, he won't stop there. Now let's look at verse 1. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. First of all, in verses 1 through 2, notice the perversion of grace, which is antinomianism. The perversion of grace which is antinomianism. Paul here shows some illogical logic. You with me? Some illogical logic. And that illogical logic is to continue in sin. That's the logic of his opponents that he's imagining. And you know, those of you who are teachers, uh, you know if you've read Stott's book, In two, Between Two Worlds, he says that anytime you're teaching the Bible... You're taking off and you're landing. You're taking off from the first century and you're landing in the 21st century. And the teacher is in both worlds. And the teacher is is taking the truths that are revealed in the first century and, and before. Certainly the Old Testament was earlier than that. But he's asking the questions of the 21st century. And if he's a good teacher... He's anticipating the questions that are in the minds of his hearers. Like Spurgeon used to say when he was preaching, I think I hear someone asking, and then he would give the question. So that's the way, if you're you're an effective teacher, you're always imagining, well, what are they asking? What are they thinking? What are they struggling with? What's the pushback on this truth? And the Apostle Paul is a world-class teacher. And he is anticipating these Romans. He, remember, he's never been to Rome. He knows some of these people. You get at the end of Romans, you can see how he's addressing certain people. He's known from other parts of the world who live in Rome. But by and large, he doesn't know the Roman congregation, but he just knows humanity. And he knows how we think. And so he's anticipating that question. He says, I can hear someone say, well, if this is true, if the gospel is as you say, then why don't we just sin all the more? And then we'll experience more forgiveness and grace. Won't that be wonderful? I can enjoy 
the pleasures of sin, and I can enjoy the freedom of being saved all at the same time. He, he, he can hear them thinking that without a, a, without a sound. He can hear it. And pastors can hear things like that too. And you know why? Because it's going on in their own head. Uh, so here's, here's what he's saying. You'll notice that a proper understanding of God's work in justification leads to this illogical logic, which is a confirmation of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, if your complaint about the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is that it produces antinomianism, right, you... I've explained it correctly. If you, if you heard correctly what I said, you will have this objection, illogically, logically. Now, the illogic of it is in the next phrase. The logic of it is, well, it makes sense. You're freed from the punishment of sin, so why wouldn't you want to go ahead and sin some more? That's certainly logical on one ground. It's logical for a man who knows nothing about the new birth. It's logical for a person to ask that who's not, who doesn't realize that the work of Christ includes a powerful transformation, not just of your status, but of your nature. But it's illogical if you believe in the new birth, if you know something about union with Christ when we become believers, if you know something about the power of grace in moving you away from sin. Now, if you know that, then it's an, it's an illogical, logical question. And that comes up then in Paul's answer. He says, by no means. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? This is logical logic. And logical logic is that the work of Christ includes not only a transformation of our status, it includes a transformation of our nature. We've died to sin. Something dramatic has happened in us. You see, justification and the atonement of Christ for our justification, has to do with what God does for us. But that's not all that God does. God does some things for us, that is externally to ourselves, but then He does some things in us. And these two are inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And many of the heresies and misunderstandings of biblical truth come from men separating what God has joined together. So we've got to keep these things together. Our justification, our forensic righteousness with our practical righteousness that comes flowing out of a new nature. And so it's not just enough, frankly, in our sanctification that we just continue to look back with gratitude to our justification. Some people think that sanctification flows out of your justification. It doesn't. It's indeed true that when we look at our justification, we have gratitude that moves us in our sanctification. But you wouldn't do that unless you had a new nature. Your sanctification actually flows out of a new nature. And that new nature we're going to see here flows out of a bigger idea, which is that we are in union with Jesus Christ. And because we're in union with Him, here he says in verse 2, we died to sin. How can we still live in it? 
So the big idea is we don't sin or continue in it because we're dead to it. And the reason we're dead to it is because we're in Jesus Christ. Now, this preacher can hear you thinking too. And I hear you thinking. You're saying, if I'm dead to sin, now why did I just yell at my wife last night? You don't get this. If I'm dead to sin, why did I look at pornography last week? What, what, you know, you're telling me I'm dead to sin and then this stuff keeps going on. We'll get to that. Glad you asked the question. Hang in there. <laughs> but he's saying that something about sin has changed dramatically in your experience, not just in your status. And we're going to see what that is. Now, move with me to uh, verses 3 through 10. And Paul, having made this strong adversative, and having said that something definitively have, has happened to us, and even Stott puts it this way, if you read his commentary, he says, grace does more than justify, it also sanctifies. So Paul's point is, the grace of God does justify, but the grace of God also sanctifies. And if you're a recipient of His grace, it will not only change your status, it will change your behavior and your attitudes from the inside out. That's the very nature of grace. Now, uh, look at Roman numeral number two. The theology of grace is behind all of this, and that theology is union with Christ. The justified sinner is also a born-again sinner. The justified sinner is also a baptized sinner. What does that mean, baptized? Well, of course, we when we see the word baptized, we think commonly of water baptism. We have some different views represented in this room about how, how you do it, who gets baptized, and all the rest. But generally speaking, we know it all takes place with water, and it's done in the name of the Trinity. And it has to do with initiating someone into the family of God. We know that much. We can agree on that. And Paul here is referring to it knowing that the Roman Christians do baptize uh, each other. They have been baptized, but now he's appealing to something beyond just the water. He's appealing to the meaning behind the water. What does it mean to be baptized? What does that sacrament or that ordinance represent? And what Paul's going to show here is that it represents being brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of this word baptism. Uh, Keep your finger in Romans 6 and turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. And here you'll see a strange reference to this idea of baptism. When Paul says here, uh, look at verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Exodus, of course. Now look at verse 2 in 1 Corinthians 10. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptized into Moses? What in the world? Well, that's just my point. And Paul's point in Romans 6, obviously baptism has a deeper meaning than just being poured with water or dunked in water. It means brought into union with someone. So if you're baptized into Moses... You're baptized into allegiance under his leadership. You're baptized into all the benefits that Moses' leadership will bring. You're baptized into Moses' ministry. You're baptized into the body that Moses is leading. You're baptized into all the work of the redemptive work of God under the cloud, through the sea, into Moses' leadership as mediator. So the analogy here in Romans 6, back to Romans 6, is that Paul's going to say, We've been baptized not into Moses. Brothers, we've been baptized into Jesus Christ. 
We've been brought into union with His leadership, His mediatorial work. All the blessings and benefits, not that Moses can get for you, but all the benefits that the Son of God can acquire for you. We've been baptized into that, He says. So let's look at how this whole thing plays out. He's saying that you're, you've died to sin because you've been brought into union with Jesus Christ. So He says, do you not know, this is verse 3. Now, isn't that interesting? Do you not know? Paul's saying, first of all, the very reason that you ask the question, shall you not sin that grace will abound, is that you don't know something. It's either ignorance or forgetfulness. And in my, in my age in life, I can't remember which it is. But it's one or the other. I know that. So he says, do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ. In other words, we were baptized into Christ. So we are brought into union with Him and we enjoy the benefits that come from being brought into union with Jesus Christ. Now, in our salvation, the most fundamental principle, the beginning of everything, the head of the stream, the source of the fountain is union with Christ. Your new birth flows out of Union with Christ. Why are you born again? Because you're organically in union with Christ. Why are you justified? Because you're in union with Christ. And he's making the point here, why are you sanctified? Because you're in union with Christ. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, we were perfectly reconciled with each other. We were reconciled to God. We had an intimate relationship with Him. So in the cool of the evening, in the palace garden, Adam and Eve we take a stroll with Almighty God. There is the picture of eternal blessedness to have a profound and intimate friendship, a conversing friendship with the living God. That's where we're headed, brothers. Now, what happened with sin? When Adam and Eve sinned, they're dismissed from the garden and the seraphim, the seraph uh, guard the garden. You can't get back in as a sinner. So now we're exiled from the garden. And the entire story of the Bible is how are we going to get back to that intimate relationship with the living God? And of course, at the very end of the Bible, you see the new heavens and the new earth come down out of heaven, a new Jerusalem, a new city of God. And God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. He, he gives us this covenantal language at the very end of the story. So it's all accomplished. But how is it accomplished? Through union with Jesus Christ. This is the reason Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, I'm the vine and you're the branches. How can you get any closer than that? So the analogies in the New Testament are that the work of Jesus Christ is to restore intimacy. Some of you have intimacy problems. You're going to get over that. <laughs> Part of your salvation is you're going to desire intimacy and you're going to be granted it and you're going to know what to do with it. You're not going to fear it. You're not going to fear being known, nor will you be bored by knowing others. You will be in intimate relationship. Other analogies the Apostle Paul uses. He talks about the head and the body. How can you get any closer than that? that your head and your body, how closely are they connected? Well, I'll tell you. They're as closely connected as you and Jesus Christ are. And then he talks about the bride and the groom, you know, in loving intercourse and in marriage and in loving intimacy. 
He uses that analogy. How, how can you get any closer to another human being? All of these analogies are shown us in the New Testament to show us the nature of our salvation. It's not forensically simply to have a new status. Of course you have to have that to get back into intimacy with God. You can't come back in as a guilty person. You'd be destroyed in His presence. So we have to have a new status. The forensic or legal justification has to be there. But that's just the beginning. That's just to get you in the door. Now you're in the door. You want a relationship. And Paul is saying, that's been provided for you, gentlemen. And so when you ask this question about, shouldn't I want to just go ahead and sin, you're acting as though all you've got is your first step in the door and there's no intimacy in here. He's saying you've missed the whole idea of salvation. It's much bigger than simply justification. So he says we are baptized into Christ. Now, secondly, look at verse 3b. We were baptized into his death. Aha! So if we're brought into union with Jesus Christ personally, and we're going to be organically connected to Him, Paul now is making his big point. That being true, then you're organically connected to His death. And He died to sin. Now, it's not because He had sin like you and me. He died to sin in the sense that sin had its way over Him, Sin destroyed him. It wasn't his sin, it was your sin. And it destroyed him. It put him to death. But we know that by virtue of his resurrection, he put the principalities and powers to shame. He triumphed over them by the cross. So he killed death. Death killed him, and then he killed death. And he put it in the grave. Death put him in the grave. He put death back in the grave. And so what he's saying is, if you're brought into union with Jesus Christ, realize what He did to, to sin and death. He destroyed it. And you have the same bloodstream with Him. You're, you're, like a, you're like a fetus in the womb. You're sharing the same nutrients. You've got the same bloodstream. Well, not exactly. The analogies do break down at certain points. I knew that the pediatricians would get me on that one. But it's close to the same bloodstream. You know what I mean? You're sharing life with Him. And he died to sin. So, so you were baptized into his death. Keep following the argument in verses 4 and 5. See, so we walk in newness of life. What he's saying is the death of Christ is inextricably connected to the life of Christ. You can't just say, well, I receive his crucifixion, but I don't know about that resurrection. Or, you know, boy, sure, I'm glad he's rose, he rose again. I love Easter, but I'm not real sure about Good Friday. That makes no sense, does it? So it makes no sense for you to say, oh, I'm glad that the penalty of sin has been paid for, but this thing about living the Christian life, I don't know how to do that. Not really interested. It's impossible to separate them. That's the point the apostle is making here. Die, you die to sin because what Jesus Christ did to sin you're organically related to Him. And furthermore, not only did He do something to sin, but He ushered you into righteousness. Because look at this. Jesus lived a perfect life. He's still perfect. And you are in union with a perfect Jesus Christ. You're sharing His DNA. You've got the same bloodstream. You're organically connected to Him. That righteousness is surging through your being because you're in union with Him. You cannot separate what he did to sin from what he does to introducing you to the righteous life. 
So we walk in newness of life. You'll see the same argument in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Same argument. We have to understand where our sanctification comes from. It comes from a living, organic relationship in connection, in baptized union with Jesus Christ. We look to Him and His strength surging through us. We're dependent upon Him. Yes, we're doing the works, but we're depending upon Him. It's His life. Our umbilical cord is always connected to Him. We're getting life from Him. So we walk in newness of life. And then look what Paul says. He's continuing this argument then in verses 6 and 7. We are then free from sin. We know that our old self was crucified. Now what does he mean by old self? I mean, literally, he says the old man. (laughs) The old man was crucified. So Paul says elsewhere, you know, in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So my old man, in all of its totality, the old nature, the old me, was put to death. There's a new me. Yes, I've got the same body. I've got, unfortunately for my wife, the same personality. But there's a new me inside this body and inside this personality. There's a new, not just a new status, but a new life, a new man. And he says, don't you realize what's happened to you? How can you ask a question like that? Let's go on sinning because we've been forgiven. How can you even think such a thing? You're a new man. You've got, woo, thank you, Lord. You wanted them to hear that one. I don't know what happened on that, but... Somebody help me out here. It's going to blow some eardrums. And I've, I've learned a long time ago that ameners have to have their eardrums. All right. So you can see that we're new men. We're free from sin because the old man is crucified. And look at this phrase, the body of, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is this body of sin? If you read Stott, he'll show you different theories. And I'm sure this is one thing that stumped a genius like Martin Lloyd-Jones probably doesn't stump me so much because I'm not a deep thinker. But it just seems to me that it's, it's, he uses the word body because so many of our sins come right out of our bodies. Our hands, our feet, our tongues, our brains, other organs. Uh, all kinds of things in our bodies, okay? Uh, and so it's, it's useful for him to use the word body because so much of our sin is very carnal, very... But we also know we've got pride, greed, lust. All these are invisible. That's part of the body too, the body of sin. So it's really the whole corporate structure of our sin nature. And he's saying it's brought to nothing. Now, once again, you're sitting here saying, then why am I struggling so much? And you get into Romans 7, and of course you're quite aware there's a huge struggle for a Christian man. In fact, there's a certain sense in which we could say, you know, my struggle only began when I became a Christian. Shoot, I didn't have a struggle before that. <laughs> I'm just enjoying life, you know. There's a simple principle. Do what you can do when you can do it if it doesn't cost you anything, you know. Just whatever you can get by with and enjoy, go have at it, you know. So life had a simpler approach before I became a Christian. When I was on the road to hell, things seemed to be so simple. Yeah, it was just all, 
It's just, you're right straight to hell. That's it. You know, just enjoy your way on the way to hell because you're going soon, and so just grab for all the gusto you can. It was a little bit, you know, it, there wasn't nearly the struggle. Now, you would have a struggle, of course. I don't mean to make light of the struggle of the secular man because the struggle you've got is you can't think. If you start thinking, you're going to be in trouble because uh, if you really start thinking and you don't have Christ, you're, I mean, you really are thinking, you're, you're going to end up where most of the existentialists of the last century did, and that's dead from suicide. I mean, life doesn't mean anything. Uh, life leads to despair. So I don't mean to make light of that. I'm just simply saying, you know what I'm saying, that the struggle really begins in, on another level when you become a believer. So why does he say then this body of sin might be brought to nothing? Here's the argument he's going to make, and he brings it to grand conclusion at the end of this section, that you're brought from a reign of darkness, a rule of a dominion of sin where you were enslaved. You thought you were so cool. You thought you were doing what you want to do. You thought you were promoting your self-interest. You were deluded. You were deceived. You were only leading to your destruction. Sin had you completely bamboozled and had you enslaved to its own ways to eat your lunch. That's where you were. And now you've been brought into a dominion, a reign of grace. You're set free from the inevitability of destruction and sin and darkness. You're brought now into light where you can see. You can make real choices. Sometimes you make godly choices. It's because you can see. You can think now. You're free. You now understand where your real self-interest lies it lies only in saving union with Jesus Christ. You see that now. You're free from the lies of the evil one. This whole system has been brought to nothing by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through faith in Him and being brought into union with Him. This is killed. That's what He means. You've been transferred from one kingdom. It's a powerful kingdom. To another kingdom, and what you need to realize about this kingdom, it too is more powerful. The kingdom of grace. That's the liberation. That's the death that has taken place with regard to sin and the desire to do so. For one, verse 7, who has died has been set free from sin. Now, Stott makes the point, it's a good point, that even in the ESV, this word set free from sin, the word set free is the word for justification. You've been justified from your sin. Stott then draws the uh, inference that the main argument Paul is making here, that in our union with Christ we're justified. I've been saying the opposite of that, as you know, for the last 45 minutes. And I do disagree with him. I agree with a lot of other people uh, who would be in disagreement with that. It's not that it doesn't include our justification. But the big argument about our liberation here, the whole context of it is, how are we going to be delivered from the power of sin? How are we going to not continue in the practice of sin? Not the condemnation of sin, but the practice of it. So I would say that being set free here, even though the word justified is used, it includes justification from the penalty of sin, but it also includes deliverance from the power of sin. And we'll see that as we go on through succeeding chapters. Now look at verses 8 through 10. 
And what you'll see here is that just as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are inextricably connected, mutually inclusive, so it is in your life. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives to God. In other words, what Jesus experienced was definitive for Him. He died once. Jesus Christ is not going to die again. Satan is not going to get his hands on Jesus Christ ever again. That was it. Once and done. Jesus is forever delivered from death. Also, Jesus rose from the grave. He rose not to go back into the grave later like Lazarus. No, he rose and stays out of the grave. Here's the point Paul is making. So it is with you. You died once to the condemnation and the reign, the ineluctable power, the inevitable enslavement of sin. You also were raised in newness of life, never to go back. It was definitively given to you. You've got life. And you have eternal life. And eternal life, by definition, is eternal. It's not temporal. You can't trade it back. And those of you who think you can lose your salvation, think again. You have life. If once you've been given real life, if you really have it, it's eternal. And you've been raised with Jesus Christ. And you can just as easily become a non-Christian as he can go back and get dead again. That's what Paul is saying, that we're connected, we're in union with Jesus Christ. And it provides the power that we need in our lives to confront the everyday sins. Well, you say, glad you said that because I've been wondering, how does this practically work? Well, here you have the answer. Look at Roman numeral number 3, verses 11 through 14. The practice of grace is this, holiness. So he shows us the perversion of grace, which is antinomianism, which means anti-lawism, which means... You know, obedience doesn't matter. That's a perversion of the biblical doctrine of justification. And he shows us how the, the, what the framework of this grace is, that it's union with Christ. That's the abiding, overriding principle. And here he shows us how it happens in practice. So, okay, you've taught us, Sandy, today, again, the framework for our salvation. You've taught us not only from the Bible about justification, but now you've taught us about union with Christ. So not only our forensic status, but now our practical experience. But how does it work? Look at verse 11. First of all, you've got to consider yourself. Consider yourself how? Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ. You've got to think about yourself. The Christian life is lived reflectively, thoughtfully, meditatively. That's the reason we read the Bible. That's the reason we take walks in the woods and meditate about the Word of God. Look at Psalm 119. He's constantly meditating upon the precepts of God, thinking about them, marinating in them, considering all the implications of it. You've got to consider things. Well, what are you considering here? You're considering what the Bible says about you. You're confronting the, the option of whether you're going to click the button to go to a pornographic site or not. What do you do? You consider who you are. You're in union with Jesus Christ. You're not married to a prostitute. You're married to a perfect groom. And wherever you go, he goes. 
You just consider that. You're walking down the beach and, and trying to figure out whether you're going to lust after all the bikini-clad beauties or not. And you just consider who you are. You're a missionary, an evangelist. You're a little Billy Graham walking the beach. You begin to think about these things. And you begin to, you begin to consider the outcome of the adulterer. He ends up in dead bones buried in the basement, says the proverbial writer. It says Solomon to his sons. That's where this heads. And you begin to smell the stench of human death. And if you've ever smelled that, you know you don't want to smell it again. You begin to, begin to smell it because that's where adultery leads. You begin to consider things. The Christian lives a considered life. So in union with Christ now, we have the power and the freedom to think, to consider. And what do we consider? We consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Think about it. And that's what you do whenever you're facing the fork in the road. The division between good and evil, right and wrong, brave and, and cowardly. You, you consider that you've already died in Christ to sin. The bondage has been broken. You are liber you're a liberated man. You're not a slave anymore. You're free to walk boldly with the Lord Jesus Christ in His steps. And the whole purpose of your life is to live for God. Think about that. Does that not change the way that you confront the ethical crisis in front of you? Whether you're going to lie in your business for a short-term gain on the quarterly report or whether you're going to consider who you are and live like a man of God. You have to stop and think. And you know as well as I do, when you're facing the fork in the road and there's something you want to do in your flesh and it's contrary to the will of God, you don't want to think. You turn off the thinker. It's exactly what you do. Paul says, don't turn off your thinker. That's the key. Consider that you have died to sin. You're dead to sin. It's been done. Sin has no condemnation over you. Sin has no control over you that you don't give it. You've got the power by the grace of Jesus Christ with whom you're in union to fight that battle and to win it. Now, secondly, look at verses 12 and we'll also include verse 14 here. So he says, take hold of yourself then. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. How perverse that you would go back to your old slave master who has abused you, who's wanted to destroy you, and you ask him for orders. He says, get hold of yourself. You know you're over here in this new kingdom. You have a, we'll get into this next week. You have a new master. And he desires everything good and beneficial for you. And when you follow his orders, you are following your own self-interest. There's no question about it. He loves you and he's promise the entire kingdom to you. You receive it as an heir in Him. That's what it means to be in union with Christ. So you're going to listen to this, this old crappy person. Sin, the devil, the world, the flesh. You're going to listen to that. It makes no sense. So he says, first of all, consider your new life in Jesus Christ. And secondly, get hold of yourself. And do not offer yourself to the one who wants to destroy you. Look at verse 14 under B. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are under law. You are not under law, but under grace. Law does wonderful things for us. Law reveals the righteousness of God. 
The law is good because it reveals God's character, and that's good. The law is good because it shows us right from wrong, and we need that. The law is good because since we're sinners, the law honestly condemns us, convicts us, shows us that we are in need of a Savior. Without the law, we'd probably be drifting on along our way ignorantly, but the law stops us dead in our tracks. And as we saw in Romans 3, shuts every mouth that tries to justify itself on its own behavior. The law is good because it gives us principles to form society. And much of the rules and laws of the American society have been fashioned by the Ten Commandments. It's a good thing to have the law. But gentlemen, if you live your whole life under the law and if you try to justify yourself by the law, It slays you. It destroys you. It's good. You're bad. That's the problem. So you cannot live under the law because it only condemns you and you have no power to obey it. You're in this old dominion by nature. You're born this way. You're conceived this way. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was conceived in this kingdom. I was brought up in this kingdom and I have no power to liberate myself from, the, from sin and therefore the condemnation of the law. But Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law. You're under grace. And you can see Paul is pleading here to say, grace is powerful. Grace is not just some sloppy, you know, erasure of your sins and then go on and live life the way you want to, you're forgiven. No, grace takes over your whole life. Grace is a dominion. It's a kingdom. It's a reign. And when you enter Jesus Christ, you come into that dominion. You come under His reign. So when you're under grace, now you will obey the law. Isn't that ironic? And that's the freedom. There's a book written about the Ten Commandments called God's ten freedoms. And when you're under grace, that's what the law is for you. Then the law becomes your friend and shows you how to restore the intimacy for which you're made with Jesus Christ. The law, by the power of the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, as we'll see in chapter 8, allows you then to draw near to God instead of driving you away from God by its condemnation. Run, run, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The gospel brings us sweeter things, bids us fly, and gives us wings. That's the difference between being under the law and being under grace. Now, lastly, he says, not only consider yourself, take hold of yourself, but present yourself. You know, I can remember, some of you know the name Frank Formy. This is going back about 20 years. Uh, Frank died about that long ago or a little less. But I remember Frank is such a servant, had such a servant heart. We all loved him to death. And Frank, I can, I'll never forget, I was a new pastor here. I've been here less than a year. And Frank Formey just walks in my office and he says, Frank Formey reporting for service, sir. <laughs> he says, I finished my last big task. I'm ready for the next one. Just tell me what to do, pastor. Now, he was presenting himself. Now, Paul says, don't present yourself to the pastor. He doesn't say present yourself to Billy Graham. He says, Present yourself to God. That's what you do. When you're living in sin, 
and you just continue doing all the crappy stuff that sin wants you to do. You know what you're doing? You're presenting yourself to sin every day and say, here I am, sir, ready for service. Here, take my arms and my feet. Take my mouth, my tongue. Take my heart, my mind. Take my money, my estate. Take my ambitions. And just use it as you will, sin. You have a choice between that or going to the living God who in His grace is interested in taking you. He wants your hands. He wants your feet. He wants your filthy mouth. He wants your troubled heart. He wants your feeble mind. He wants everything about you. And in His grace, as your daddy who loves you more than you love yourself, He will take all these feeble things about us that have not enough intrinsic worth within themselves to be of any worth, but He takes them. We're His unprofitable servants. He takes unprofitable servants and by His grace makes us useful for the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is saying. This is the way that we fight sin, not through trying to add to our justification, not through trying to guilt manipulate people and say, well, you know what the preacher says, that you're, you're justified solely by the work of Christ. But you know, you also, you have to do a few things to make that work. No, Paul says, pox on that. He says, here's the answer. Your justification is completely accomplished by Jesus Christ. And at the same time, you have a new nature. You are under the dominion of grace. And what you do is you think about these things. You contemplate them. You take hold of yourself and take full responsibility for offering the members of your body to present yourself, body and soul, to the living God. See, here I am, your son, ready for service today. Let's pray. Father, for the magnificence of our salvation, we praise you. Who could ever have dreamt of such a thing? That you would set us free from the legal implications and the complications and the condemnation of our sin. And at the same time, give us a new nature and unite us to yourself through Jesus Christ so that we share in the conquest over sin, death, and the grave through simply being united to Jesus Christ. Oh, what men you've made us. Help us to consider these things, to take hold of ourselves. And in light of these things, even today, Lord, to present ourselves to you for your service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.